Welcome to Smashing the Plateau. We help you get unstuck so you can do what you love and get paid what you're worth consistently. I'm your host, David Schreiner Khan. The most important thing is to complete the mission. As a commander, and I was a commander of a combat unit for quite a few years, you are completely free to do whatever you want. You can improvise, you can change the plan, you can do whatever you want as long as you complete the mission. Today on episode 552 of Smashing the Plateau, I'm here with the author of the unstoppable startup, Uri Adoni. I'm going to ask Uri what principles are most important to drive success of a startup based on his experience in the Israeli startup sector. You can find out more about Uri along with all of our previous episodes at smashingtheplateau.com. Are you building your own business after a long career as an employed professional? Listen to our show, Going Solo, also found on our website, smashingtheplateau.com. Now let's welcome Uri Adoni. Uri is the author of the book, The Unstoppable Startup, Mastering Israel's Secret Rules of Chutzpah, published by HarperCollins. Uri has over 20 years of experience in high tech as the CEO of Microsoft Networks Israel, a venture capitalist at Jerusalem Venture Partners, one of the leading VCs in Israel, an angel investor, a board member in numerous companies, and a speaker. Uri, welcome to the show. Hi, David. It's a pleasure to be here. Congratulations on your new book. You know, I was struck by the fact that there, there's been so much written and discussed about startups, and your book is also about a startup. Why did you decide to write The Unstoppable Startup? I think there were two main reasons. One is that uh, in Israel, uh, we had uh, many, many delegations coming to Israel uh, asking uh, basically the question of what is the secret sauce of the success of the Israeli high tech and also, you know, when I had to chance to travel the world uh, and be in all sorts of high tech conferences and it's always came up, you know, it always came up, you know, what's the secret sauce? How come you're second to the Silicon Valley and how come, you know, in Israel we have the highest density of startups per capita, highest venture capital per capita? What's the secret sauce? So I, that was in, intriguing me to kind of uh, look for this uh, secret sauce. And the other thing is the the percentage of startups that don't make it is is about 75%. And so I thought, you know, if I can give my humble contribution by uh, giving, you know, at least sharing my experience and maybe decreasing this number of, of unsuccessful startups and increasing the ones who succeed, that will be my, uh, my modest share. And is the percentage of startups that don't succeed the same in Israel as it is in the U.S.? <laughs> it's a hard question to answer because... Uh, you don't have all the data. The data is not accurate, uh, and sometimes you know venture capitals are not revealing all the all the data about their startups, and it's hard to define what what's a failed startup, whether it's something it's a startup that shuts down or it's so you know if if the startup was sold, but as an investor you lost money on it, did it fail or not? Probably yes, but you wouldn't know that because the VC wouldn't re reveal the number. The assumption is yes, that we have a better numbers, but again, I, I cannot, uh, I cannot uh, support this by hard, uh, hard data because the data doesn't exist. But you know, statistically, if you look at an industry of the high-tech industry, the assumption is about 75% of startups 
don't make it. And, you know, uh, there's several definitions to what it means to make it or not make it. Mm. And when you started researching your book, um, how long did it take you to start to see patterns that led you to describe this as a secret sauce? When I was talking to entrepreneurs, when I, I it came about and I talk about it in the book when somebody asked me in a conference, you know, what's the how do you how can you summarize your whole talk of whatever, 30 minutes talk to a tweet, <laughs> you know, and you say, how can I tweet it? I, said, I don't know. So eventually I told them, you know, it's, you know, you should tweet. It's all about, it's all about chutzpah. And that's kind of triggered me. But in a way, again, when I was talking about the Israeli entrepreneurial culture, in many cases, I referred to the chutzpah and I always found that people were really intrigued by it and want to hear more about that. And so when I was starting to ask, uh, you know, entrepreneurs and founders of companies, you know, whether they thought that the Israeli chutzpah had a, uh, had a part of their success, they all said definitely yes. And each one of them shared their story. And this is basically what the book is about, is, uh, is demonstrating what chutzpah is through the stories. And I should say, however, that chutzpah has both a, a positive side, but also a negative side. And uh, I'm talking of the positive side. The negative, the negative side is being rude and you know, arrogant. And so we're not talking about that part. And it's a kind of thin line between the negative and the positive side. But the positive side, and we can expand on that a bit later, is about you know, the mindset of chutzpah, the, the mindset of being audacious, audacious, the audacity, the go-to, the being bold approach. And all these kind of things and are highly relevant to startups. And so when I was talking to these entrepreneurs, they all, you know, they all kind of, when I said, you know, tell me a story about chutzpah or how chutzpah helped you. And they all had like straightaway answer. They knew exactly what I was talking about. So it was really, you know, I, I didn't even have to dig it up. They, they knew exactly what it was and, and they knew and they actually said it had an important role in their, in their mindset as their startup was, uh, was growing. Yeah, no, I, I totally see how chutzpah can be described as an attitude or mindset. In your book, you actually talk about some very concrete principles that are behind the attitude, behind the mindset, and behind the behavior. Correct. And yes, one can learn from some of these principles, and I wondered if you could go through what a few of them are, because they are, the principles actually do stem from experiences that Israelis have that are not not necessarily the same as experiences of similar f people either in the U.S. or in other countries. Correct. But I think the principles are, I don't think the principles are Israeli ones. I think that any successful startups, if you kind of uh, reverse engineer it, you will see the same principles. Uh, and so I think they can be implemented to probably any startup, but probably any business in a way, not just for startups, but definitely I can, I can you know, we can walk them through uh, uh, quickly. The first one is, is, as I mentioned, is, is challenging the reality and the status quo. And I think this is a, a very important one because many people who, you know, are active in some kind of a vertical or a space uh, or business, they're kind of their mindset are, OK, this is how things have been working for whatever, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years. And why change? And the whole idea of this kind of rule of chutzpah, chutzpah as I call it, is about challenging it. Say, so actually, I can do better than that. This one, this model is a broken one. It doesn't make sense. You know, there's whole industries that challenge, you know, the, it didn't make sense to buy a whole CD for one song. And it worked for years that you had to buy the whole LP or the CD. And eventually, you know, Apple came and said, you know, no, just buy the song you like. And so that's, 
it makes a lot of sense. You know, why should I buy 12 songs if I only want, want one? So, you know, technology obviously helps that. But I think in any industry, and I think we're living in an era where everything is challengeable and everything is kind of uh, questionable and old models don't necessarily work and technology enables you to actually challenge it. So whether you're in the food industry, whether in your insurance business, whether you're in a fintech business or a finance business, uh, whether you're in, in the media, everything is is changing and technology enables that, definitely in the healthcare and, and, and digital health and all that. So there's a lot of things to challenge. And um, uh, if we'll have more time, I can go to to more examples. But I think this is you know, the mindset of not accepting reality as it is, is probably one of the most important thing that any entrepreneur should have. Yeah, agreed. And it doesn't matter how big your company is and, and whether you're a local business or a global business, that's a, it's a very important uh, mindset. The second rule is about dominating the market category that you're after. And um, usually when we, as, as venture capital, you usually want to build a company, to invest in a company that will dominate the category because then, you know, obviously it's a good business, but the valuation of this company is very high. You have really good multiples on that. And there are two ways of going about that. One is by entering a category with this, which is relatively fresh and there's not a clear, a clear leader yet. And that you can compete with the two, three players that are in the category and you say, you know, I have a better technology. I have a better go to market. I have, you know, better idea of my you know, channels or whatever, and I can take over this category. And the other one is to invent the category, you know, to come up with an idea that will just come up with something that nobody thought about before. Uh, you, you know, Twitter came up with a concept that nobody had before. And nobody's even challenging Twitter. You have Twitter and that's it. They, they have a category, they build a category, they invented it and they rule it. So I think that uh, and in other cases, you will have uh, competition, but uh, which is not necessarily a bad thing. But uh, I think that uh, looking at the category that you're after and trying to understand what what is it that can lead it. And again, it comes back to the first one, because if you challenge it and say, OK, I'm coming up with a new concept that will kind of redefine the whole category, then you can definitely lead it. The third one, uh, the third rule is about foreseeing the future and kind of innovate to meet the demand, to meet the demand. So you know, today we're living in a world where you can say, okay, I know what technology will be in three, four years. I know where the world is going and what will that mean in terms of the needs? Yeah, the cars will be autonomous, but what does it mean? What does it, an autonomous car means? It means, for example, that it can be hacked by hackers. So you say, okay, there will need to be a protection. So I can come up with a concept of a cybersecurity uh, solution for an autonomous car. And this is, again, it's a new need. Nobody had this need before because there weren't autonomous cars. And so if you see where the world is going to or where, or where a category going to, then you say, okay, I can come up with a new solution to the future needs. And then you build it in a way that in two, three years, hopefully your assumption or your hypothesis will meet your product. The fourth rule of chutzpah is about the market today. The market needs it today, even though it doesn't necessarily know it. So obviously, you know, Steve Jobs is a great example of somebody saying, you know what, this old mobile phone doesn't work. You don't need all this uh, buttons on it. I'll give you a, a plain, you know, a screen and uh, you'll use media more than you'll use your phone. And everybody said, what, what do you mean? And, and he was right. I mean, the market needed it. They didn't, the market didn't know how to articulate it, but they needed it and they bought it. And, you know, the whole, mar the whole mobile phone market changed. But also in case, uh, you know, I mentioned the Waze story of the Israeli company Waze, they, they came up at the time and said, you know what, it doesn't make sense that all the GPSs 
I just direct me to the place that I want to go to. And they don't tell me where there is traffic jams because then I, I have the route, but I don't have the time, you know, the estimated time uh, of arrival. And then I want to make sure that I get there on time. And they said, you know what, if people would share their data and their, you know, how fast they are, are traveling, I know where the traffic jams are, are and I, then I can redirect some of the other drivers. And everybody was very skeptical and said, oh, that wouldn't ever work. People would be private, you know, concerned about privacy, et cetera. Google Maps is out there. Who can, you know, Google, who can beat Google? And, uh, and they said, no, the market needs it. And they came up with the solution and they prevailed. And eventually Google bought them for over, over a billion dollars. So, and it, it was relatively fast. They proved the market needs it quick. So they had the good pilots and they went out from there. The fifth rule is about bending the rules. So um, I think that when you look at, and again, without going into obviously uh, breaking any legal rules, but you have all sorts of kind of whether it's uh, industry rules or a competition rule, all these kind of things that you want to kind of bend sometime. Uh, I give an example of, uh, of Space IL where uh, there was a competition made by Google for teams that wanted to send some kind of a, uh, a spaceship to the moon. And uh, one of the conditions in the, in the competition was that the spaceship, once it lands on the moon, it needs to travel for 500 yards on the moon. And everybody, all the other teams were building this rover uh, that should travel 500 yards on the moon, and which made it very, very heavy. And then they need more fuel, et cetera. And they, it was much more challengeable. Or the, the challenge was much bigger. And the Israeli team came back to Google and said, you know what? You never said that it has to travel on the moon. Can it jump on the moon? And, you know, Google looked at the rules and said, you know what? It doesn't say it doesn't say here anywhere that we said travel. So, yeah, you might as well make it jump. And then the whole concept of the spaceship was different because it was much lighter, uh, less fuel, etc. And uh, unfortunately, when they landed on the moon, the, their spaceship crashed. So they didn't have the chance to actually make it jump. But in terms of just an, a, a quick example of what, what bending the rules could be. And the last one, uh, the sixth rule is is kind of show, don't tell. And that's also, I think many cases is relevant to technology, but not only. When you come up with a solution or with technology, you can explain what it does, but the best thing is just to show, demonstrate it. Uh, we had a company called Thetaray, for example, that did um, anomaly detections in big data. They could find what's unnormal or normal in, in big data, a huge amount of data. And what they did was they went to, uh, and still do, to companies, large banks, you know, insurance, whatever, and they said, okay, give us any, any amount of data that you want plant in there some anomalies, which we don't know. So we don't know what the data is about. We don't know what the anomalies are about. Things that will take for a data scientist to figure out, I don't know, months of work, six, eight, nine months, they found in like a couple of hours of running their machine. And they said, okay, the, here are the anomalies. And the interesting thing was that in some cases, they even found anomalies that the client didn't, wasn't aware that they had. And so they found all sorts of, um, you know, uh, money laundering issues and all sorts of things like that. And so the fact that they actually demonstrated that the product is working or the technology is working, you can actually prove it before you have the product ready. So you can do it in relatively early stages. You have the MVP, the minimum viable product, you prove it, and then you may have, a, you know, a client, a design partner, or one of these Clients that could say, wow, this is actually working. Let's, I want to engage uh, with your technology. So definitely, you know, demonstrating your product and your capabilities is always better than talking about that. Uri, I want to thank you for sharing these six principles. Um, I think they're really important. 
I was struck by them when I read your book, challenging the status quo, dominating your market category, foreseeing the future, finding needs your market doesn't know that they need yet, bending the rules and showing, not telling. I actually want to talk about one in particular, dominating your market category for two reasons. We talk a lot on Smash the Plateau about solopreneur businesses, people that are using their expertise as a consultant coach or in a in a small professional service business. As you said, these principles can be applied to any business. So solopreneurs can apply them, the principles to their own business, and they can also see how they can be applied to their clients' businesses because many of them have, mm -hmm. have either startups or larger companies in their client base. For a, a consultant or coach, one of the things that I have observed when it comes to market category is every individual has a unique set of, of skills and experiences and has a, even if they're basically in competition with lots of other service providers, they sort of have their own way of solving a particular problem for their market. And mm -hmm. especially in today's world where even pre-COVID, more and more work was becoming virtual. So you're, because of globalization, et cetera, there is lots of competition, especially in the service business market. What I've seen is that service businesses that can find something that is a very, very narrow niche do a better job, not only of dominating in their niche, but also they are in a better position to market. It's easier for their target market to understand what problem they solve and how they do it and how they're unique and how, they're, how they provide value. I wondered if you could comment a little bit on, on how, how that principle may apply based on what you have observed in your work. Sure. Uh, it's a great question. I think that um, what I've seen, I think probably the main thing that you should have is a very uh, uh, musical ear, let's call it, to be very, very good listener to what the market is telling you and also um, have a very clear understanding of what what is it that you do, like you mentioned, differently than others can be the business model, it can be the approach, it can be the combination of a service and a product, whatever the differentiating edge that you have. And I think that uh, the first one, listening to the market, sometimes you don't even need, you don't even know what the market needs because, you know, you are, you're providing a service. And again, like we talked earlier, this is how things have been working and the, and the world is constantly changing and so are the needs of your clients. And the sooner you understand the need, the better or the faster you can actually react to that and come up with the right solution, the right service, or maybe a, the right product or a combination of the two. I think that, you know, talking to a client and understanding what is it that they need, you know, I give a, an, an example of CyberArk, which is a, it's a great company that we invested at the time. And, and they started with a product or, you know, it's a kind of a, it's a product, but it's also kind of a service of some kind of a, a vault for your, you know, your organizational uh, uh, passwords and things like that. And as they were listening to the market, they understood there is actually a much larger need that's called privilege access. How do you actually 
limit one person to get into the data and let the other one uh, access the data. So it happens, by the way, that Snowden came at the time and it really helped them because it was a great demonstration of what happens when you don't have uh, privileged access. So he had access to everything. But they and then they came with a product that actually answered this need. So in a way, it, they couldn't have thought about that if they weren't listening to the market saying, you know, how do we manage this uh, privilege access thing? Because everybody has the access to everything. And so I would say that as you know, whether it's consultant, uh, I think that um, kind of talking with your clients, sometimes the clients even not aware it, you know, it's sometimes they're just mentioning something and you need to be quick to catch it and say, okay, I just hold on there. What do you mean that you, you would love to have X? What do you mean when you say, I wish there was a thing and then say, okay, uh, you know, that's a good brief. And if I will come up with that, would you be interested to to purchase such a service? And, you know, if they came up with that, it's a good case that they will. And they can actually help you to design the product or the service because they they are the client at the end of the day and say, yeah, you know what? If you come up with this idea, I can actually uh, help you to design it. And then you can really have this product market fit. And so I think that... Uh, in that perspective, you can really understand well what's the market needs uh, and try to get it before the competition get it and and be there first with the with the solution and the proposition. One of the things I tell consultants is if you can sell it even before you have built it and delivered it, that demonstrates that there really is a need because somebody has actually put money on the table for it. Yeah, true. By the way, I think I mentioned also in the book, the, the, the Dropbox example is a great example because when they started the company, they just made a video and said, oh, there's this product that you can actually share really large files. And then they released the video. And they, if you want this product, you know, just click here and or send us your mail or whatever. And they had like tens of thousands of people reacting just the video. You, they don't, I don't know how much of, a, you know, lines of code they've written by then. And so, but they had this amazing uh, reaction from the market to verify that there's a need for this proposition. So definitely if you can sell it or if you can pitch it and say, you know what, by the way, you don't have to lie. You don't have to say, I have it. But you say, you know what, if I can bring it to you within a month or, you know, six or whatever, I'm working on this product and I want to validate with you. I want to tweak with you, maybe the features, et cetera. Yeah, that, by all means, you can sell something before it exists. It's a great way of uh, of validating the offering. Absolutely. And, and Uri, speaking of, uh, of of things coming up in the future and your principle of foreseeing the future, what would you love to see happen when it comes to startups? I think you need to come up with a, a good hypothesis of where the market is going. Some startups will get it right, some don't, because none of us is a you know fortune teller, but I think that if you look at data and you look at trends and you say, okay, this is where it's going, you know, telemedicine, uh, that was something that people talked in the last few few years back. And now it's, you know, happening in a big time, for example, because there's no reason you should go to a doctor to do all sorts of checks if you have the technology in your home to make some of these uh, checkups. So there are things that in a way you can say, okay, assuming this will happen, what would be the need? So you need to come up with an hypothesis you need to back your hypothesis with some data, also with a hunch. So it's, it's not all scientific. So you need to have a good hunch of where the market is going. And usually people who kind of breathe, breathe their market have a good hunch of where it's going and come up with, a, with this hypothesis and a, with a product that has a good competitive advantage to answer this 
need that will uh, come up from your hypothesis. So you say, okay, I have this hypothesis. This is where the market is going. This will what the market will need. It's large enough to justify a company. This is what I want to build, and this is why I will uh, outcompete the competitors because I have this advantage through the technology or any other means. Uri, if somebody wants to go deeper with um, any of these principles that you've shared today or learn more or access any resources you have, get a copy of your book, where would they go? So by all means, there's a website called uh, theunstoppablestartup.com. They can reach me through LinkedIn. Uh, I'd be happy to respond. So either the website, LinkedIn are both fine, both fine. And obviously, there's a book on Amazon if they're interested to buy it. Of course. Um, and Uri, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to join us today on Smashing the Plateau and share your wealth of experience in the startup world. My guest today has been the author of The Unstoppable Startup, Uri Adoni. Thank you again, Uri, for joining us. Thank you, David. It was a pleasure. When you visit the Smashing the Plateau website at smashingtheplateau.com, you'll find a summary of each episode along with the links we mentioned on the show. Today, we learned what principles are most important to drive success of a startup and much more. Please share this episode with friends and colleagues to help them smash the plateau. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our show. I'll see you on our next episode.